Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Jess Phoenix will join us to discuss Ms. Adventure. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, volcanoes, perhaps some of the most fearsome places on planet Earth. It takes a very certain kind of individual to explore these areas. And joining us today to discuss explorations into these volcanoes is Jess Phoenix. Ms. Phoenix is executive director and founder of the environmental scientific research organization Blueprint Earth. Since 2008, she has been a volcanologist, an extreme explorer, and professional field scientist with universities and major research institutions to study lava flows, natural hazards, and climate research on glaciers, and much more. She's a fellow of the Explorers Club and has recently penned a new memoir about her work entitled Ms. Adventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life. Ms. Phoenix, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, it's certainly our pleasure. It's certainly a fascinating memoir to talk about your explorations, volcanoes. How do you become interested in volcanology? It was sort of an accident. I had just entered my master's program at Cal State University, Los Angeles, and I wanted to get some, some more field experience because, I, to be quite frank, I went into geology because it was an opportunity to travel and learn and explore the world. So I, for a volunteer researcher position at the United States Geological Survey's Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, and they accepted me. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I get to spend a summer in Hawaii. Maybe I'll like volcanoes. Well, the very first time I set foot on a volcano, it was like love at first sight, hardcore. <laughs> and ever since then, I've embraced volcanoes as what I was supposed to do here on planet Earth. <laughs> What was it about the experience that enthralled you about volcanoes? Well, the first volcano I worked on is active, but it's not currently erupting. And that's Mauna Loa in Hawaii. And the volcano itself is just absolutely massive. It makes up over 51% of the island of Hawaii, the big island. And from its base on the ocean floor to the summit, just under 14,000 feet above sea level, it's bigger than Everest. So it is just a huge volcano. And the first time that I worked on it, I actually was able to go up to the summit to the caldera that's up there. And the caldera is, it comes from the Spanish word for cauldron. And it's essentially like a round area near the summit of volcanoes that forms through, through collapse. When magma drains out, sometimes there's not enough material to support the overlying rock and it collapses down. So you get walls and then splatter area in the center. And Mount Loa's summit caldera is vast. We're talking several miles across, so uh, the long direction. And it's just absolutely huge. And when you're up there, for me, I was born in 82. And th those lavas that I was looking at were produced in 84. So I was actually older than the rock I was standing on. And that had some sort of transformative effect on me. I kind of said, 
wow, the earth is still in the process of creation, and I am lucky enough to be able to witness it. And of course, that creation comes with destruction sometimes too, and that's the challenge of working on volcanoes. These volcanoes, obviously, they're in some of the most interesting places on the earth. That must have a draw as well. That is true. It's not like I'm, I'm stuck going somewhere that has nothing cool to look at. The Ring of Fire, of course, is quite famous, and that's all around the Pacific Ocean. So you've got Western North America, and then South America, Central America, of course, and then over to New Zealand, Oceania, and then up to Japan. So you really can't go wrong with even just that side of the world, but Europe is home to plenty of active volcanoes as well. And, you know, of course, Iceland, a relatively small landmass, is made up entirely of volcanics. So it's basically everywhere you might want to go, there's a good chance there's a volcano somewhere nearby. Do you have a favorite place that you've visited? You know, the, my favorite volcano that I've ever worked on is still Mauna Loa. And I think it was because this, it was the first one. But I now have a fixation with lava lakes. So there's only about depending on the, the day, there's only about seven or eight of them that are active worldwide. So my new passion is to visit all those lava lakes and, and do studies on them. And I've been to a handful, but there are still a few others like Mount Erebus in Antarctica, which is there's, there's roiling lava, you know, in a hellish inferno there in Antarctica. So it's completely surrounded by ice and snow. And I think that juxtaposition of fire and ice has some sort of a pretty strong allure to it. What's a typical exploration kind of like? Well, there are some key things that research expeditions tend to always have. So you always have to, to count on having a strong operations and logistics side of things, because if you're affiliated with a university or a research institution, you have to meet all of their requirements for, of course, using your funds appropriately and doing risk assessments before you go out into, into the field. And if you are leading your own expedition, it's the same type of thing. You have to make sure that the team members are all up to the task. So for some expeditions, people actually need to go and train. Like say there's going to be rappelling or rock climbing or navigating crevasses or being in the desert. I mean, you need to be in good physical shape or you need to make sure that there are accommodations if you have any sort of disability, whether it's something that is more permanent or something temporary, like you've had an injury and then you have to work around it. And then you also need to, you have to plan, and this is a, a trick that geologists have to uh, contend with. It's not, it's not fun, but because we take samples and the samples are made of rock, typically, our gear is, even though we eat our food while we're out in the field, you still have to carry back your rock samples. So you don't really get a break in lightening your load on the way back, but we're used to it. We prepare for it. And you're always learning. That's the other thing. So every time I work with new scientists, they teach me things that are more efficient in the field or more helpful as tools to use. And I teach them as well. So there's a lot of ongoing learning that you, you do when you do expedition research. What are we now learning about geologists that have come out from the study of volcanoes? Well, one of the really exciting things, and it's not something that most people really think about because I think uh, a lot of us are pretty visually oriented, but volcanoes actually make sounds that are unique to them. And I don't just mean the sound of an explosion. I mean the sound of magma moving around underground, the sound that the gas makes as it rushes out of the volcano, or the sound of a lava lake 
which can sound exactly like the, the ancient Greeks and Romans thought it would sound if a, if a guy was down there banging metal on metal, Hephaestus and Vulcan per the myth. And you can totally understand that when you go up close. But recently, there has been some pretty cool advances in recordings made on volcanoes using volcanic infrasound. So infrasound is sound that's below the range of human hearing. So, you know, we, we talk about that noises like bats make that are above what humans can hear. Volcanoes make sounds in the lower frequencies. And if we record those and then play them back, adjusted so that we can hear them, it is like, it's just otherworldly. And we're actually beginning to learn what those sounds tell us about what's happening inside of the volcano. Like, is the eruption going to be imminent or do we have some time? And you know, we can't predict eruptions. So every new bit of information that we get is, is adding another piece to the puzzle. And it's all important for the ultimate goal of saving lives. So what's actually making these sounds? And can you describe what some of these sound like? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's not a flattering noise, but I can, uh, I can, make, I can have a go at it. But they, they basically are, it's the sounds of, of magma moving around underground. And so think about it as essentially molten rock breaking through older, colder rock. And that produces small earthquakes, but it also does generate noise. It's just too low for us to hear it. And when it, we do hear it, when it's adjusted, it sounds, it sounds kind of like something from, I don't know, Mordor, or like if the Eye of Sauron was talking to you, it's like a very, wow, very deep noise. And that, I sound hilarious. I sound like Cookie Monster on a bad day, but it's like nothing else. And if you Google Volcano infrasound, it's I-N-F-R-A, sound, you actually can find some clips of volcanic infrasound recordings. And the U.S. Geological Survey will often have links to webcams and all sorts of, of data, seismic data from the earthquakes produced by volcanoes. So highly recommend checking out whatever your local geologic agency is uh, for the international folks. They have a lot of data available there, and some places will have infrasound. Others, you can just look at webcams and see the earthquake data that comes in. Do you have to monitor these sounds that are fairly close to the volcano? So oftentimes, if it's, a, if it's a sound thing, people will get relatively close. And infrasound arrays can, can be within a couple of kilometers of the, the volcano where the activity is going on. And of course, if you have seismic stations, the, the more of them that you have, the better your data is going to be. So they try to create arrays around volcanoes that need monitoring. And that goes for infrasound and seismic and what we call deformation, which is when the ground inflates or deflates by a couple of centimeters when a magma chamber fills up with lava. Well, in that case, it's still magma when it's underground, but it will be lava when it comes out. Or if the magma chamber is deflating, then that, that material is draining out through another part of the volcanic system, and it may not erupt where you think it will, or it may not erupt at all. Do you have a memory that particularly sticks out in your mind about some of these adventures or some of the more nail-biting situations you've been in? Well, one in particular, uh, which I write about in the book, <laughs> was when I was a newlywed. I had somehow convinced my brand new husband, Carlos, who works in cybersecurity. Uh, I had said, oh, yes, come with me to do my field work in rural Mexico. And we were in Sinaloa in 2010-2011. And the cartel activity was really bad then. And we were working 
north of Mazatlan. And that area, there are, it was basically just controlled by narcos at that point. And so he and I, um, we were working in a pretty remote mountainous area and I had been injured. I, I was recovering from shoulder surgery. So I had one good arm and one bum arm. And I was doing rock hammering with my, with my small hammer and Carlos was using a sledgehammer to break larger rocks into, you know, more reasonable size pieces for me to, uh, to analyze. And we ran into some narcos and the short version is we, they took my rock hammer. This was a, I had left it somewhere. Neither of us had grabbed it when we got in our car and left hastily. And so we had to chase down the narcos because rock hammers are special. They're not like a typical, like picture hanging hammer for your house. They're made of one piece of drop forged steel. So the head and the the handle are the same thing. And they're really hard to come by in rural Mexico. And for safety reasons, you need to use those to crack rocks open and not a regular hammer. So if we didn't get that hammer back, my three months of research was going to come to a grinding halt far too soon. So we ended up chasing after the narcos. And I asked very politely in my best Spanish, and they gave my hammer back. But we definitely confused them to death because I have red hair and I am white. I am very pale. And Carlos is Mexican and Colombian in his ancestry. And I think they expected him to do the talking. And instead it was me (laughs) explaining, yes, I'm studying volcanoes. No, they're not erupting right now. You're safe. And no, we're not looking for gold. (laughs) Well, I mean, probably one of the more colorful adventures. Yep. So women who are interested in volcanology, it's typically a male-dominated field. Do you have any advice for them if they're interested in making their way? Well, you know, it's it's kind of general advice, uh, unfortunately, but it, it's the best advice I've got. And that's if you're really into something, if you find yourself fascinated by it, if you're passionate about it, or even if you're just extremely curious, tell everybody you meet, especially if you're young, tell every single person you meet. I don't care, you know, if you're, if you're 12 and they're 80, uh, just tell them what you're into because you never know when you're going to run into someone who says, you know, oh, my uncle's cousin's sister's ex-wife is a volcanologist and here, I'll put you in touch with her. I mean, you never, you truly never know. And it's really important that for young folks to find people who are willing to open those doors for them. And that's how it worked for me. I was lucky to have some very good male mentors in the field and they were 100% supportive. I never had one of them say like, you can't do this or do you think you're up for it? It was okay, let's go. You know, no one ever said, I don't think you can carry that much weight. It was just like, okay, this is what we need you to carry. And, but we're all, they're, of course, very responsive too, if, if you need some help or some extra assistance. And I think we can really do a great service to the scientists coming in our footsteps by opening those doors to everybody who's interested. And scientists of all races, ethnicities, religious backgrounds with different disabilities or abilities, it's for everyone. And there's always some way that you can get involved in, in field science. It just has to sometimes get creative. <laughs> uh, regarding that, you're executive director, co-founder of Blueprint Earth. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your organization. Right. So Blueprint Earth was founded because I did work in the natural resources sector for a while. And I came to realize that as much as we would love to not have to extract minerals from from the planet, uh, we do if we want to uh, have cell phones, et cetera. So we need to figure out how to do that in a more balanced way. And right now, a lot of the natural resources extraction exploits humans and 
disrupts the environmental systems that are in a delicate balance. So we founded Blueprint Earth, my husband and I did, as a way to, one, understand the systems, really really get a blueprint of the systems in a functioning environment. Our first study area is in California's Mojave Desert, which actually there are, there's flowing water there. There are bighorn sheep and mountain lions and bobcats. I mean, this is a, an incredible little oasis in the desert, but in reality, the desert has plenty of life. So we take students out there. This is the second goal of our work is to provide field expedition training and field science training to students from all different backgrounds. And so we make these trips available at no cost to students. And we have enough funding from donations and grants that if a student can get to either Los Angeles or Las Vegas, we're able to uh, cover all the costs from there. And then we, we're getting to the point where we can offer a few travel scholarships every year. So we are, we're trying to make it as accessible as possible. And we've seen tremendous results. Most of our participants are women and most are people of color or, and come from low income backgrounds. There's, you know, those three areas, we actually find the majority of our participants have one or more of those, of those characteristics. And so I think that goes a long way towards showing them that, look, science, is for all of us. You get a sense that more efforts like yours, inclusivity in science, increasing these days? I really do see it. I'm, I serve on uh, the Geological Society of America's Geoscience and Public Policy Committee, and that's designed to try to basically put forth the policies of this really big professional organization and to liaise with, with U.S. lawmakers and Congress. And we had a meeting recently where we talked about how to have inclusive language and how to have inclusive policies for a broader array of students. Um, because, you know, there is a stereotype that geologists are older, typically white males with uh, beards who like to drink beer. And in reality, that, that those folks do exist and a lot of them are great. But there's also, you know, young Muslim women who wear the hijab out to the field. That's still a thing. It, it happens. And we need to make sure that the geosciences are a welcoming community for all sorts of people interested in science, because those different perspectives can lead to new ways of understanding the information that we collect. And so they're important. If you have some final words regarding your book, Field of Volcanology, what, what would you like people to take home? Well, I think the underlying theme of the entire book is it's not totally specific to volcanoes, but it's that curiosity is in our nature. Uh, that's who we are as humans. And it's something that, that sh we, we share as a common bond that cuts across every walk of life and every background. And we're born exploring the world around us, putting things in our mouth and you know, seeing how fast we can run and, and what happens if you cry when you're a baby. And, and so I think if we can just inspire each other to, to maintain that curiosity, that's how we're going to combat the disease of ignorance and willful misinformation that we see these days. And, and it's how we're going to solve big picture challenges like the changing climate and a growing population. We were just talking with Ms. Jess Phoenix, her new book, Ms. Adventure, My Wild Explorations in Science, Lava, and Life. Ms. Phoenix, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. 
Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.